church. And I want to thank you all for being here. There is really no substitute for gathering face-to-face with the body of Christ. And uh, I know that some in our congregation can't do that uh, because of uh, medical conditions or other reasons. So I am thankful that we have the ability to uh, live stream the services. So for those of you who are watching online, thank you for joining us that way as well. Well, it's my honor once again to bring God's Word to you this morning. And as you saw on the screen, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 through 40, verses 43 to 45. So you can go ahead and get there in your Bibles. I had a little bit of a panic last night because I had uh, this really sharp headache that came on me yesterday afternoon and, and was lasting for hours. And so I thought, well, maybe I'm coming down with something, so I uh, touched base with a couple of men who I knew had, had uh, preached both here and elsewhere before and asked, okay, just in case, do you have something in your back pocket? Uh, <clears throat> and I want to thank CJ, by the way, for saying yes, just in case, if you need me, I can jump in there. Appreciate that, brother. But thankfully, I, I woke up and I was feeling fine, so I was probably just being a wimp yesterday anyway. <laughs> Well, today is going to be the ninth sermon in our Joshua sermon series as we preach through the book of Joshua, and there are just two more left. Next week, you'll get to hear from our student ministries director, Jordan Johnson, so that's going to be exciting and edifying, and then the week after that, I'll bring the final message in this series. And as Rebecca referred to, was it Rebecca that said that on the video announcement? Following Joshua, we're going to be doing a six-week series on the Lord's Prayer, and there'll be more to come on that. So I'm excited about what we have ahead of us. All right. Well, I want to talk about a couple of men who have something in common. One of them is Nick Saban. He's the man in the color photograph on your right. He is a highly successful college football coach. I did not say likable. I said highly successful. (laughs) Highly successful football coach. And years ago, in the early 2000s, he spent two seasons as head coach of the Miami Dolphins in the NFL. Near the end of his second season with the Dolphins, the University of Alabama fired their head football coach, so speculation began running wild that Nick Saban would leave the Dolphins and take that position. Well, one day, uh, Saban spoke to the media, and he said this, I guess I have to say it, I'm not going to be the Alabama coach. And in support of his coach, Dolphins quarterback Joey Harrington said this. He told us a couple weeks ago that he's proud to be a Dolphin. Excuse me, he's proud to be a Dolphin and he's going to be sticking around. So I take him at his word. Well, 13 days after saying, I'm not going to be the Alabama coach, Nick Saban took the position as head coach of the University of Alabama. Saban made a promise and he didn't keep it, he didn't stick to his word. The other man that you see on the slide is Woodrow Wilson. He's the 28th president of the United States. Not one of my favorites. But uh, he probably doesn't care one way or the other. (laughs) He was first elected as president in 1912. And as he was running for a second term in 1916, he and his campaign team emphasized the fact that he had kept the United States from getting involved in the war that was raging in Europe, the war that we would later come to call World War I. At that time, of course, they didn't know there was going to be another one, so they didn't name it World War I. They didn't know there'd be a sequel. 
Well, Wilson uh, promised the nation that he would continue that course and he would keep us out of involvement in World War I. And Wilson was indeed reelected in 1916. And back then, <clears throat> the inauguration. <clears throat> Bless you and excuse me. <clears throat> okay, I'm back. Back then, the inauguration for the president happened in March instead of January. So, March the 2nd, I believe it was. March, yes. Uh, maybe it's the 4th. I can't see that number. Anyway, in March of 1917, he attended his second inauguration. He was sworn in for the second time. Yay, Woodrow Wilson, he kept us out of war. In April, 29 days after his second inauguration, Wilson asked Congress to send troops into battle against Germany in World War I. Just like Saban, uh, Woodrow Wilson made this strong, emphatic promise, but he didn't keep it. He didn't follow through on it. Now, we could talk all day about experiences that we've had with people who didn't keep their word. In fact, if we're being honest, all of us have failed from time to time to keep our word as well. And because of that common human experience, we're tempted to have doubts about God. Can we really take him at his word? Will he really come through on his promise? In the verses that we're going to read, God focuses on the antidote to that doubt and that is his complete faithfulness to keep his promises. In a world that's filled with broken promises and shattered trust <clears throat> and empty words, we can be assured that the Lord God will fulfill his promises. So follow along with me as I read Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed to come to pass. Amen. You'll notice that verse 43 begins with, thus. Thus is a word of conclusion or effect. It points back to some previous observation or action. So before we get to those, these verses, let's look at the context in which they happen. The book of Joshua can be divided into four parts. There's a few chapters on them entering the land, and then several chapters of them conquering the land, followed by the allotment or the division of the land, and then closing with serving the Lord in their new land. Parts 1 and 2, Israel is in the conquest phase, so it's all about the charge that God has given them to take possession of the land of Canaan and all the battles that they have to engage in to accomplish that. And then in parts 3 and 4, there's a turn into the settlement phase of the book. The narrative focuses on how they divide the land of Canaan among the tribes of Israel and how they should serve the Lord in their new land. Now the passage I just read is right at the end of the allotment section. We're out of the conquest phase of Joshua, so the attention turns to Israel's life in the land instead of their fight for the land. Now, chapters 13 through 21 are filled with the allotment of the land of Canaan to the tribes of Israel. That's why we skipped that large section instead of preaching through it, because I will give you, a, let me give you an example from Joshua 19. It says, the fourth lot came out for Issachar, for the people of Issachar, according to their clans. Their territory included Jezreel, Chesuleth, Shunem, etc. So all, all through those chapters, what God is doing is saying, okay, your tribe, 
gets these cities, and these are the geographical boundaries that will be yours in the land of Canaan. And then right at the end of all that, the Spirit puts this concluding paragraph to emphasize what this allotment of land meant. Here are all the cities, here are all the boundaries of the tribes of Israel in the land of Canaan. So what should we conclude from this land allotment? Well, God wants us to notice three things. First of all, he wants us to notice that God, excuse me, the Lord gave Israel the land. The Lord gave Israel the land. You'll notice that in all three of these verses, the emphasis is on God's role in Israel's present state. The Lord gave them the land. The Lord gave them rest. It was the Lord's promises that did not fail. And although Joshua is indeed the main human character in the book of Joshua, it emphatically gives the credit for all of Joshua's accomplishments to the Lord himself. When the book of Joshua began, the Lord told Joshua this, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. And now that the conquest of Canaan is mostly accomplished, the author of Joshua can say this, verse 43, look at it with me again. Thus, so here's all the land, here's all the cities we own, here's all of our territory. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. The Lord told Joshua to divide the land among the tribes in chapter 13, and when he did, he also mentioned a long list of cities and areas that had not been conquered. So when verse 43 says that the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give, it doesn't mean that every single acre of the promised land was under Israelite control. But what he has done so far is enough to show that God would enable Israel to complete the conquest if they continued to remain faithful to him. The bulk of the land of Canaan was now in Israel's possession, showing them that, <clears throat> excuse me, allowing them to begin settling down. And the Lord wants us to see that as evidence that he fulfills his promises. One commentary on Joshua makes this observation. The discrepancy between the perspective of total conquest by virtue of God's gift, God gave them all the land, the discrepancy between that and that of untidy, incomplete possession is such that it is most easily read as a feature intended to catch the reader's eye. It may be a device to convey the message that reality is far from ideal and that the call to live before Yahweh will have to be played out in a plural situation of conflicted loyalties. The land is Israel's. God has given Israel all of the land, but at this point they still incompletely possess it. But the conquest is broad enough to show that God is keeping his promise. God can always fulfill his promises because he's both all-knowing <clears throat> and all-powerful. Nick Saban couldn't predict, let's pretend, let me give him the benefit of the doubt for the moment. Let's say he was being honest when he said, I'm not going to be the head coach of Alabama. He couldn't predict that his emotions or thoughts on that might change. None of us can be sure that we might undergo changes like that in the future. And Woodrow Wilson couldn't predict that Germany would begin to be more widespread in their aggressive warfare and that that would call forth a need for the United States to enter into World War I. But God doesn't have that problem. God always knows what's coming, and God can take care of any eventuality that rises. God has all the power and all the knowledge, and so he is completely able to keep any promise that he gives. There's nothing that can stand in his way. In addition to that, God is unchanging in his character and purpose. So we don't have to worry that a thousand years from now he's going to go, you know, this idea with all these humans living with me, let's end this experiment. 
That's not going to happen because God is unchanging. God is steadfast and resolute in his character. Verse 43 says that God swore to give the land to their fathers, which would naturally make us think of the generation right before them. When we say our fathers, that's usually who we mean. But in uh, this Hebrew term really refers to ancestors in general. So he's talking about all the way back to when the promise was first given. And when was the promise first given? Who received that promise? Well, that was our good friend, Father Abraham, who first got that. In Genesis chapter 13, Lot, was, who was Abraham's nephew, was dwelling in the land with Abraham. And God was prospering both of them. So they had lots of herds and flocks and servants and this kind of thing. And because the land could only take so much, there ended up being conflict. Lot and Abraham came to a settlement. They decided, okay, let's, let's separate. Let's give some space here. How many of you know you have to separate from your relatives sometimes? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not, that, that's not a valid uh, conclusion from that text. Uh, but Lot and Abraham decided they needed to separate. And so Abraham gave to Lot the choice. You choose wherever you want. And so, so Lot did. And after Lot left, God said this to Abraham. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And this promise of a homeland was later repeated to Isaac and to Jacob and on the way, all the way down to Joshua. God was promising that he would give Israel a permanent home. And by giving these allotments and having the tribes settle throughout Canaan, God was letting them know that they were finally entering into the fulfillment phase of this prophet. Now, excuse me, this promise. Now they could settle down. Now they could establish families and livelihoods. But this physical home actually is not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That is ultimately what Abraham was looking forward to. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth in which we find new Jerusalem, a heavenly city built by God himself in which his children dwell eternally in perfect peace and fellowship. And although we, like Abraham, look forward to that city, we have a greater foretaste of it than any Old Testament saint had because we who have trusted in Christ are at home in Christ. We are already experiencing fellowship and peace. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Just as the Lord gave Israel a home as he promised, he will make his home with you as he promised. Not only did the Lord give Israel the land, but the Lord gave Israel rest as he promised. Having possession of the land was certainly a wonderful blessing. But it would be difficult to establish themselves <clears throat> as a society if they were constantly under attack, if they were in a state of constant warfare and fear. So the author of Joshua mentions another promise that God kept, and that's verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. As with the statement about the land... This statement about rest doesn't apply absolutely because, as I mentioned, not all of the Canaanites were out of the land. There were still battles to be fought. Pardon me, there were still battles to be fought. But the major military campaign 
was, was finished. It was like saying Israel has won the war. Now there are just still some pockets of resistance that they eventually have to deal with. And it says that the Lord had given all of their enemies into their hands. That's the reason that they had rest. It came at the cost of many battles, but it wasn't the ability of Israel's soldiers that won this rest for them. It was ultimately God's doing. In Israel's second battle with AI, Scripture highlighted the human element in that battle. It highlighted all their preparation and their planning and and the fact that they set up the ambush and then followed through on the ambush. But in this paragraph, Scripture reminds us again that Israel's victories are ultimately the doing of the Lord God of the nations. And those victories resulted in rest. Those enemies that did remain in the land, at this point, they're not interested in provoking Israel or attacking Israel. They're living in fear of Israel, especially after watching them march through Canaan, defeating everyone who opposed them. And just as the physical land of Canaan isn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise, the physical rest that Israel was experiencing points towards something greater as well. What every Israelite needed most was spiritual rest, rest for their souls, The kind of rest that comes from peace with God, not peace with the foreign army. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Like you and I, excuse me, like Israel, you and I need soul rest. It's the kind of rest that can't be won by a physical battle. In fact, it's the kind of rest that we can't win no matter what we do. But praise be to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he has won that rest for us. In Matthew 11, 29, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you exhausted from working and fighting to make yourself righteous or to pay for the wrong things you've done? Are you swallowed up in shame over the way that you're living? Are you tired of living under God's righteous anger? Then I urge you to come to Jesus, to trust in him, to believe in his life, death, and resurrection, and you will be saved and you will be brought into God's rest. Life will still be hard, but you will be at peace with God and you'll be living in God's rest because you will now have a permanent home in his family. And by the way, if you do not know Jesus, if you're here this morning and this doesn't make sense to you or it's new or you're thinking, okay, this is kind of neat, but how do I take the next step? Let me just remind you that after every service, we have a group of people that will be standing across the front of the stage that would be enthusiastic and happy to talk to you about salvation in Christ, to pray with you and to lead you to that point. Now, some of you who are believers may be wondering where you fit in this picture. You may be thinking, well, well, I trusted in Christ. I I believed in his work and in his ministry. I believed in him for the forgiveness of my sins. But I'm not experiencing rest. I'm I'm feeling that shame. I'm feeling that chaos. I'm feeling that distance. What's going on here? Well, there are really too many factors in each individual's life for me to give a great general answer to that problem. But one possibility is that you're not focusing on Christ himself. One of the tendencies of the Christian church that we have to fight against throughout the ages is our tendency to put forth additions to Christ as sources for our comfort. For instance, often you'll hear things like, 
okay, if you are a believer, now you should live like this. And that is 100% true. God does have a way we should live. We're going to be uh, reading through the Sermon on the Mount in our Summer Bible Challenge. It's all about the upside-down kingdom that Christ himself establishes and how we should live. But we can get our eyes off of Christ as the source of our comfort and hope and look at, man, how am I doing when I compare myself to the Sermon on the Mount? And if you're doing that, you are going to be falling short if you're honest with yourself. If you're not, then you're a Pharisee and you don't recognize your own sin. It may be that you're looking at the quality and consistency of your obedience or your good works and seeing that they're not what they should be. Or maybe you're comparing yourself to someone else. You see a mature and godly person in the congregation and you think, man, when I compare myself to Bob Coleman, I am just a rank pagan. I cannot possibly be saved. But I urge you today to look to Christ for your comfort and your rest. Look to Christ as the source of your righteousness. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, which our brother Joshua referred to in his uh, communion devotion, says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled, meaning completed, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If you have Christ, if you have trusted Christ, you have everything. You have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Keep confessing that your standing before the Father is based on his work and not yours. Keep confessing that you're covered by his perfect righteousness and keep asking the Father to help you experience rest in Christ. And one more thing I will add, because we are a body, if you are struggling with that, please do seek out a fellow brother or sister in Christ and talk to them. Help them walk, excuse me, let them help you walk through that, praying with you, encouraging you, and counseling you as they're able. God gave Israel rest, which was a foreshadowing of a greater rest that Jesus Christ would bring. And since the Lord has given Israel the land and rest, the author of Joshua, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, can confidently conclude this. The Lord fulfilled his promises to his people. He can even put it in the past tense, knowing that the complete fulfillment is not yet there. God gave us the land. God gave us rest, which means that he kept his promises. And in one beautiful sentence, the author lays out what I regard as the most important theme running throughout this whole book. Look with me again at verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Not one word failed. All came to pass. What is he saying? He's saying Yahweh, the one true God, is faithful. He will keep his word. Yahweh made promises to the house of Israel, and he kept those promises, all of them. Nick Saban's word failed. Woodrow Wilson's word failed. Your word fails. My word fails. But the living God, his word does not fail. We can look in Scripture and see that he has been faithful and stand confidently on the truth that he will always be faithful. God wants us to see his faithfulness. He wants us to have confidence in him. He wants his people to trust that he will do what he said he would do. And God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to Israel gives us a ground and a hope to know that he will fulfill his promises to us. Philippians 3.3 says that we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our hope, our trust is in the promise of God, not the promise of any man, not the faithfulness or strength of any man, but the faithfulness of God himself. 
And there's a double edge to this sword of God's faithfulness, one I only thought about as I was considering applications of this sermon. And that is this, that God has promised that he will bless and keep those who trust him, and God has also promised that he will curse those who reject him and who rebel against him. Just as God executed physical judgment on the Canaanites for their wickedness, he will execute eternal judgment on all mankind <clears throat> for their unfaithfulness <clears throat> Excuse me, and lawlessness. Let me read to you this uh, very sobering verses from Revelation chapter 21. I want to make sure I get this right. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now that paragraph describes every single one of us, every human that has ever been born. And our only hope is deliverance through Jesus Christ. And let me just say that right now the door of hope is wide open. Jesus is standing here saying over and over again the verse I mentioned to you earlier, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May all of us who know Christ be moved with compassion for those who are lost. If you have a friend or family member who doesn't know Jesus, let me encourage you to pray for the Spirit to convict them of their sin and of the truth of the gospel today. Pray for opportunity and courage to talk to them about Jesus. God is faithful to his promises, and he will judge the world in righteousness. But those of us who have trusted in Christ, we will receive mercy and grace and deliverance. The message to the original audience was that God keeps his promises. But since you and I are new covenant believers, having experienced the fullness of God's revelation in Christ, the message I want to leave you with is this. Jesus keeps his promises. The thrust of these verses is that God keeps his promises, but the focus of God's plan for the ages is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. The God-man, as Josh explained earlier in the service. And it is through faith in Jesus that you and I are reconciled and united to God. It is through faith in Jesus that you and I are given the promises of God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, speaking of Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So let's think about some of the promises that Jesus gives that we can confidently say that he keeps. First of all, Jesus promises forgiveness of sins. He said that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name through all the nations. Repentance simply means turning around. It refers to turning from trusting in yourself or trusting in someone else or something else for your salvation, for your deliverance, for your life, and instead trusting in Christ Jesus and his work and ministry. And when you do that, you are forgiven. You can't see it. Like Israel could see physically the land that they were living in. But you can trust it. And it's actually more real than a physical blessing because it lasts forever. Jesus once was speaking to a crowd. And you remember the story. There was a man who was paralyzed and his four friends were carrying, carrying him to Jesus. But they couldn't get to him. So they climbed on top of the house, 
broke open the roof and lowered him in front of Jesus. And what did Jesus say to that man who was paralyzed? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when he said that, the Pharisees and scribes in the crowd said to themselves, this man is uttering blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, of course, knowing exactly what they were thinking, pointed out that it is true. You cannot see the forgiveness of sins. Anybody could say your sins are forgiven, but Jesus proved that he could do it because then he said, let me show you who I am. Pick up your bed and walk. And that man who was completely paralyzed immediately stood up and walked out of their hole, showing that Jesus can and will forgive sins. He promises to forgive everyone who comes to him. Jesus also promises to keep you in the family of God forever. In John 6, 37, he said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. Never. In John 10, Jesus says that he gives his sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That means that the weakest child of God on this planet is just as secure in the family of God as the most mature believer because it is the triune God who holds them. When you give in to your familiar sin for the thousandth time in a week, you are still safe in Christ's hold. His everlasting love isn't an excuse to sin, and the Lord certainly doesn't laugh at our sin, but he will not throw you out of his family for being unfaithful to him. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If you are a believer and you've been running from the Lord, backsliding, living in denial of his lordship, come back to him this morning. He's still faithful to you. He still loves you, and he will not let you go. Tell him that you've been running. Telling, that, telling him that you've been living with yourself as the ultimate authority instead of Christ and receive his restoration and cleansing. One more promise of Jesus I want to highlight is the promise of his return. In John 14, Jesus said this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And in Acts 1.11, as Jesus was ascending back to heaven, an angel spoke to his followers and said this, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus promised to come back, and I can say with the authority of Scripture that he is coming back. We will be delivered from this present evil age. We'll be delivered from sin and pain. There's an old song by the cathedrals that says this, We shall see Jesus just as they saw him. There is no greater promise than this. You and I are going to, experiencing, going to experience something even more wonderful than deliverance from sin and pain. We are going to see the Lord Jesus face to face and experience unhindered fellowship with him forever. Think for a minute about the greatest joy that you've ever experienced. Graduating high school, getting married, a day at the lake with your best friends. None of that will compare to the fullness of joy that will be ours when we are face to face with our Lord. And when you're tempted to doubt that he'll keep that promise because time seems to just keep dragging on and sometimes it seems like evil is indeed triumphing in this world. Remember what he did for Israel. He took this band of former slaves 
and conquered mighty fortified cities and seasoned armies. He was able to keep his promises to Israel, and he's able to keep his promises to you. Our Lord Jesus keeps his promises. Here are a few ways I would suggest for responding to this word from God. First of all, just thank the Lord for his faithfulness. When I go to prayer here in just a minute to close the service, lift your heart to him and praise him that he is faithful. Praise him that you can count on him in this world where so much is unreliable. The Lord Jesus Christ is steadfast, resolute, and faithful, and we can stand on that. All other ground, as the song says, is sinking sand, but we can stand on Christ. Worship him because of his faithfulness. Another idea would be to memorize Hebrews 10.23, which says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I know that there are many of you in this congregation, and maybe some watching online, who have experienced suffering and pain that I can't even imagine. And there are many of you who may have, maybe have been hurt by people in the church so deeply that it terrifies you to even think about entering a church building. <clears throat> I want to comfort you with this truth, that Jesus Christ is faithful. He will not turn his back on you, and he will not let you go. If you have trusted in him, I assure you, he is still holding on to you. Jesus is faithful to his promises. Hide this verse in your heart to give you strength during the dark times of suffering. And finally, tell someone how the Lord has been faithful to you. You know, one of the purposes of our salvation is that we should live for the praise of the glory of His grace. And the way that we give praise to the glory of His grace is by telling other people about what Jesus has done. So tell someone, here's how Jesus has been faithful to me. Look for opportunities and conversations this week to point to the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ in your own life. It's one of the ways that we testify to who the Lord is. It's one of the ways that the Lord uses to draw people to know Him, to be interested in this salvation that Christ offers. Jesus keeps His promises. Let's cling to that today. Stand, please. As I close in prayer, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. And as I mentioned earlier... If you have any questions, concerns, prayer requests, problems, please do not walk out of here without sharing that burden with someone up here. <clears throat> and if you don't know the Lord Jesus, we would love to tell you about him and how you can find life in his name. Let's go to the Lord. Gracious God, praise you for your faithfulness. Praise you that we can stand on what you have done, knowing that it proves that you will always do what you say. Praise you, O oh God, that we don't have to worry about you tripping up in your plans, about something unexpected arising, or about some outside force present, preventing you from accomplishing your plan. Thank you that you are faithful and we can live and trust in that. Lord God, I ask that you would lift the hearts of all your people this morning. I pray that you would renew them in their trust in your Son. And I pray that you would use us to testify to who you are to the world around us. May we spread the love of God throughout Longview and the rest of East Texas this week. Thank you for being among us, O oh God. In your holy name I pray. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters. Hope you have a great week.